Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from South Africa is Nikki Newton-King, who is the former CEO of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, a position she held from 2012 to 2019. Prior to joining the JSC, she was a partner at the law firm Weber Wenzel. She holds a BA LLB from University of Stellenbosch and an LLM degree from the University of Cambridge. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. To begin with, you joined the JSC in 1996, becoming Deputy CEO in 2002, and a decade later, becoming CEO. Transformation and modernization seem to have been prominent contributions that you made to the bourse, as well as championing the idea of businesses being socially responsible entities. Please walk us through some of the important milestones that have stood out for you in your journey so far. Well, before I joined the JSC, I was, in fact, the JSC's outside legal counsel, and I was uh, very young, relatively speaking, to be given enormous responsibility uh, where, when I was a partner at Weber Wenzel, including, for instance, um, negotiating mining contracts in in Angola in the middle of the Angolan Civil War. And when, when I moved to the JSC, I happened to move at a time in which the entire global financial markets were undergoing uh, a massive change. Uh, and so I was lucky enough to be leading the legal work uh, when I was not yet at the JSE, but for the JSE. And then when I got to the JSE itself to, com- to continue that work. In fact, I joined the JSE to complete a major litigation against insider trading on, on some of the members at the time. And then after that was finished, essentially led all of the major transactions of the JSC, demutualizing it. That means moving it from being a club like any other social club to being a company, listing it, buying the uh, futures exchange, buying the bond exchange, putting into new major pieces of technology. And I was part and parcel of either leading or or driving all of those uh, transactions. So I think I was extremely lucky from a point of view of being able to drive change. The JC that I found or that I was part of when I joined was from a staff perspective, uh, pretty pale, pretty male and relatively superannuated. And by the time I left the JSE 23 years later, we had nearly 300 staff members. We were more than 52% female. We were more than 60% uh, black, which is a really massive transformation. Um, And I think really one of the things that I'm uh, most proud of. But what I discovered in being part of the leadership of the JSE and then finally being in the hot seat was that you have an immense responsibility and an opportunity to use that responsibility to drive behavior and the way that corporates think of things because you're a regulator as the exchange and so for instance things like transformation the things like um, worrying about how a company should regard its responsibility to society beyond just the financial bottom line became something of a real passion for me because I realized that the voice that you have as the leader of the of the exchange um, is heard very much uh, more broadly than one actually expects just by 
by being in that position. When you're actually in that position, you realize that people stop and listen to the intent that you are saying things with. And I really try to use that to build a new consciousness about corporates and how they do business to move towards a more conscious capitalism, something where corporates could understand that by flexing their corporate muscle responsibly, they could make a massive difference, not only to their staff, but also to their staff, not only to their shareholders, but also to their shareholders, but also and more significantly to the society that they impact, their clients, their um, suppliers, and I think that's a trend that you now start to see echoed far more widely. And for me, if I look back on my career, being able to pull those levers, I never expected to be able to do. And I'm pretty proud that in my time at the exchange, we recognized that those levers were there and we were brave enough to pull some of them. And thinking about the change dynamic, because when you look at some of the listing criteria and requirements, in a way, you're able to change the guts of an organization to help direct what they're doing from a societal point of view instead of just oh, ticking the bottom line, this is our corporate social responsibility, that they've got to actually be a lot more tangible and be accountable. And in this wave of thinking, the other piece that strikes me is that with your legal background, you know the law and you know that law can be changed. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, if you took a snapshot of the JSC in 1996 when I joined um, to to the end of 2019 when I left, the major shifts in the regulatory framework were enormous, were dramatic. Some of it was about disclosure, uh, because disclosure is important in corporate life because it enables the stakeholders to engage with the information disclosed and push the executive and the board to make the changes that those stakeholders think are important. It enables stakeholders to hold the board and the executive uh, accountable. So that's uh, really important. But if you think about things like the listings requirements that we put in to force boards to have a policy on gender diversity at board level and racial diversity in the company, what that does immediately is it says to boards, this is something you've got to worry about deliberately now. Now you've got to disclose it. And how you disclose it becomes something with which your stakeholders can engage and also becomes something with which commentators can engage because now they have facts at their fingertips. So we were not essentially using the regulation to force a quota, a deliberate quota to be met, but certainly using regulation to force disclosure of things that, by definition, then, force change. And I think that those sorts of things really made a massive difference. What I learned is that as you do these things, engaging with your clients is really important, and not just with your clients, like in this case, the listed companies, but also your stakeholders. So that why are you doing what you're doing? Why will this make a difference? And Throughout the time of our changes in listings requirements, some of them were very peremptory requirements. You know, you can't have a chairman and a chief executive who are the same, as an example. But some of them were more disclosure related and all of them pushed boundaries in a way that I can tell you that our international peers were amazed at our ability to do. Staying for a moment on the dynamic of leadership and also power, 
a few years ago, we had a, a very in- interesting conversation in terms of distinction of women in leadership, so i.e. occupying a particular role, but then women in power and having this view of you don't necessarily have to occupy a leadership role, but you can occupy a position of power which directs change. Could you just reflect a bit on, on that dynamic, on, on how you see women in power uh, versus women in leadership? Yeah, so in any organization, it's problematic in the sense that people identify only certain titled positions as leaders. I I don't believe that that is the case. Clearly, those titled positions, chairman of the board, non-executive directors, uh, executive, CEO, these are important positions and they have a power attached to the position, which is really key and, and which we should expect and demand that those holders of those positions, and especially if they're women, exercise uh, consciously with regard to their responsibility in building, for instance, more just workplaces, more just companies, uh, and more diverse workplaces and companies. But anybody who has the ability to actually make something happen has a level of power that I think we just don't recognize. So, you know, you have power if you decide that you are going to, for instance, spend your money at one company or another, at one at one uh, shop or another. You have power as a finance director if you decide you're going to, of your own volition, drive, for instance, the paying of small uh, service providers more quickly than you are required under your contract with them. These things, recognizing that we have agency in what we do, I think is a really important part of actually driving change. Because if we sit back and wait for government or for those who have titles to decide that now is the right time to make a change, I think that change will happen too slowly and perhaps even not be the change we, we as w- would want to see. Because it's when you are in a position where something is not sitting right and you force a change that that change is likely to be something that is more relevant and works better for you. Definitely. The time is right when the time is right now. Exactly. Earlier, you spoke about when you got to the JSC of it being very pale and very male. We still have this tendency that when you look at the representation of corporate boards, that it is still quite male biased. And last year, we had a series of interviews looking at a report that the University of Stellenbosch had released about women on South African boards. And it showed that in 2008, 14.3% of JSC company directors were women. That number had increased in 2017 to 20.7%. And if we look at actual numbers as opposed to just percentages, the the numbers had moved from approximately 540 to 598. But when you look at the dynamics and the the breakdown of who those women are, 80% of women on corporate boards are non-executive directors, 14% are executives. And that, for me, speaks to the absence of women holding senior positions in companies. Given all of your experiences, what are some of your perspectives on how we can improve the number of women in decision-making roles and building up internal talent pipelines? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the first point is we underestimate the strength of diversity because in this country we treat diversity as something to be noted on a scorecard and not as a competitive advantage. But in my experience, if you truly embrace diversity, it really allows one to look at uh, the most tricky things from multiple perspectives, resulting in a far more creative and robust answer. So if you want to build diversity, you have to really believe that it is in your interests, your competitive interests, to be more diverse uh, at, the, at the top. And I think the reality is that uh, you have to have that agenda driven authentically uh, at board and executive level. And so if it's not been driven by the executive, then, then it has to be driven by the board. And the way you do that is by making sure that transformation at an executive level is measured by the board. It's in executive scorecards. It counts. It hurts if they are not transforming uh, fast enough. But if one is serious about um, making a change, uh, not only at the executive level, but also down the organization, because what you aim for in good organizations is to grow your timber so that in time, you have enough timber that will eventually get to the executive uh, level. Well, if you're serious uh, about that, then you really have to relook at every element of recruitment to make sure that it encourages diversity. I think people underappreciate how, for instance, setting the job requirements needs to be looked at with a different eye. Have you set them truly neutrally? Have you looked around in the pool that you're recruiting from? Are you looking around in a pool that is truly diverse? For instance, have you used recruiters that specialize in finding women? What does your panel, your interview panel look like? All of these things, you have to be conscious about it, and then you have to measure it. What made a difference at the JSC is we had an absolute policy about diversity. Not gendered diversity, to be fair, but diversity generally. And that forced us to look at all of these things. And then I think the, the reality is that there is a tipping point when you have enough women and especially enough senior women at a workplace and people are conscious that, you, that these are women of quality, they are executing at the most extraordinary level, then other women want to come and join you. I mean, the JSC definitely had reached that tipping point where, you know, if we were looking for senior positions, I often had to say, look, this one I really need to find a man for because there are just too many women around the table. So you you... You really have to be strategic, deliberate and authentic about that. And these are unconscious biases. So what you're saying, it's about making the unconscious bias conscious and trying to eliminate it. I think it's really about challenging and having the conversations about the strength of diversity and having the conversation about how we do things around here in this business that encourage different views, different ways of, of thinking. I mean, when I was the CEO, the very first conversation that any new staff member had at the JSC once they joined was an induction uh, discussion from me, and it talked about um, it talked about the history of the JSC and what that meant and why that was important as a framework, but not as a as a binding constraint that we were writing the history that people would talk about in ten years' time, twenty, fifty years' time. But I also talked about our values, and one of the values is diversity. And that's diversity of age, of gender, of thought, of business model. And when you go through that and you really authentically believe that, then people understand that that you're encouraging 
different views, different ways of thinking about them. So therefore, it's not surprising that you look around and everybody is different to you. In, in my executive, not one single person went to the same school, as an example. In fact, even came from the same background. And, and I thought that both, uh, it, it was quite complex to manage from time to time because you've got all these strong personalities capable of having a view. But boy, were we able to robustly interrogate anything we wanted to do. And I, I'm always very, very grateful for having had those sorts of team members around me. I was going to ask you, with all of that diversity, how did you come to reach consensus on points? Well, um, sometimes my colleagues would say that I had a higher threshold for dissonance than some of them did. And my general leadership style is very collaborative and, and I like to hear different views. I like to be challenged. I think it's very easy for CEOs to settle into the my way is the way, you know, um, and I think you really have to work hard to avoid that. So we spent a lot of time discussing things and hearing people out. And it, it didn't really matter which role you had, whether you were the CEO, CFO, the head of technology, the head of post-trade, um, the head of HR. If we were discussing anything, you could have a view. And then we would settle on the view that made the most sense. And often it became quite clear what that answer was. But sometimes uh, you know, the role of the CEO is to make the decision at the end of the day. And, and sometimes I had to do that. And it's not always the loudest voice. Sometimes it's the quiet voice that uh, actually makes the most sense. You have to work very hard as a leader to make sure that you honor that point. Because in teams full of A-type personalities, it's quite possible, actually, that you don't hear the most important voice around the table. So you have to consciously go out and pick that voice out. Do you know what I mean? Make sure that they are speaking enough. Thanks for sharing some of your history and work experiences that you developed through your time at the JSE. Looking towards the future, some of your work after the JSE concerns education, uh, making quality education accessible to all of South Africa's children and young adults. In the last, let's say, a year now nearly, COVID-19 has left absolutely no space untouched. But I consider it's been particularly unkind when it comes to education in this country, especially the children and highlighting resource disparities. So can you please share with us some of the work that you're doing in the education space? Yeah, I mean, education is the beginning of anybody's ability to progress, isn't it, uh, really? And so uh, as I had a gap year last year and I had the opportunity to put some effort into something uh, for SA Inc. I decided that um, if I could make a difference in the educational space, I'd try to do that. So together with some very, very special people, um, both within the, deep, the Department of Basic Education and outside, um, we put together a free-to-air TV program called Wasimatrix. It took seven weeks from the day of our first conversation to the day in, in which we launched the TV program. If you can believe that, that, that is an incredibly fast time frame. Um, and essentially, we had four hours of television, seven days a week for three months on SABC, DSTV and ETV. And it, was, it dealt with the major matrix subjects. 
and then some of the secondary matric subjects. There were 1.2 million matrics writing last year, 600,000 the first time, 600,000 writing for the second time, in incredibly difficult circumstances. And most South African matrics live outside Wi-Fi area. They probably don't have a smartphone. If they do, data is incredibly expensive. They don't live very close to a hotspot, even if they did have a, a smartphone. And so therefore, we had to look at national broadcasters to help us show this content on TV, uh, which is what we did. It was a really important way of reaching as many metrics as we could. I would have loved to have reached more. But what that did was essentially get metric quality content there for them to view whenever they like. We were generously supported by SABC, by DSTV, by ETV, and by all the content providers who had built this content years before sometimes and who made it available to us for free. And so what I would say to you, it was uh, the beginning of something that really has the potential to build a proper legacy of content available, free to air, for all metrics. We're busy working on Wars Matrix for 2021, and hopefully we will be able to go live with that at some stage. Um, but also, my experience here was how extraordinarily generous South Africans are. Every single person we spoke to came to the party without expecting payment. That they just gave us for free because everybody recognizes how important education is. So what's the bottom line on this is that when um, the chips are down, South Africans are amazingly generous, amazingly civically orientated. And I think it's that natural uh, civic inclination that I think if we can build a consciousness in corporate South Africa about that, then the way we do business in general past the, the world of COVID could really be something that makes a significant uh, difference to ordinary South Africans. What you did and as the, the collective was really incredible and, and vital, not just the, the children and the youth, but the economy of the country. It was important, but I think we need to take it to scale. And I think we really need to find a way as a country where we settle on recognizing that we have scarce resources. And some of those scarce resources is teaching capacity. It's just the sheer number of teachers, the sheer number of schools available, the sheer mass of people who need to be educated. So we need to think freshly about how we roll out education in this country, and then we can make a massive impact. Tying into what you've just said, whilst we look at resources of having access to the internet and that being a clearly scalable mechanism of being able to to reach people, but if you dumb it down, TV can do the job, radio can do the job when people just don't have access, whether it's equipment, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's, it's data, that those are other ways of being able to achieve the same goals as media. That's definitely right. And if you were designing afresh, I think we would put a world in which core curriculum or large portions of it would be available on those media for free. And then you use classrooms to extend, to push, to essentially hone the skills of the students. Because we have really committed educators in this country. But the sheer backlog that we are going to have to confront for the bulk of South Africans is actually humbling. You know, it's, it's 
one thing in well-resourced schools where children can learn remotely, etc., and they are doing so extremely well, and the educators in those environments are showing the most amazing uh, amount of creativity. But imagine if you are a really able child from a, an environment that doesn't have access to Wi-Fi, etc., but, but in a future world where you had an ability to access this database of really top quality content, you would be able to give yourself a fighting shot at mm. accessing university at the level that meets your brain power. Yeah. And we need to find a way to do this. So we really are at a pivotal point. Technology can enable so much with education, but we have to think fresh. The DBE is definitely wanting to harness new technologies uh, for more of the grades. But I think one's got to be realistic and recognize that the big exit year that we have to worry about here is matric because they're the ones that have to get to university. And if we delay matrics getting into university, then we delay the number of doctors, the number of engineers, the number of lawyers we will have in five, six, seven years' time. These things have a massive implication on our economy. So, um, you know, there is every reason for us all to be uh, aligned on, on a way forward. So true. So last year was your gap year, which was very invested in terms of, of driving forwards for, for education in the country, particularly with matrics. What's next for you? Um, I'm not sure what's next. I certainly am completely passionate about education. I'm having a number of conversations with uh, boards uh, about non-executive roles. Um, I'd like to do something that makes a real difference in this country that speaks to the ability of corporates to use their business muscle in a more socially responsible manner and in a manner that makes a difference to their stakeholders and beyond just their bottom line. And let's see where that takes me. Hopefully that those type of uh, skills have a, a way of uh, being attractive to some companies. But, um, you know, I think there is also and importance for people like me who have business skills to make it available to the state for things like Wasimetrics, um, you know, where you can really uh, leverage those skills, those connections, um, and that experience to, to make something happen fast without expecting anything in return personally. Yes, a seven-week turnaround, that is fast, really. Well, it was really fast, you know, and the interesting thing about that is those of us working on the project had never met each other physically, ever, not ever. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to think about that because we make so much about the importance of meeting over the water cooler and going away on Bosparada and so on. And I am a firm believer in the benefit of that. But what I'll tell you is that trust can also be built online through meeting the commitments that you say you will. And I'm very proud of how we all work together to make something work that had nothing to do for our own personal benefits. It was for a, b a bigger cause. It's about national civic inclusion and being able to give back to that consciousness in the country. Yeah, you know, this is the interesting thing is how natural it was for everyone to do that. I don't know if that's a South African thing, um, but certainly in my experience working 23 years of the JSC, there were more than more than a handful of times when people didn't have to do the things they did, but did them because it was the right thing to do for the country. A, a real sense that, you know, this is our country and together we can do amazing things. 
Uh, that sense of almost, I would phrase it as psychological ownership because you don't own it directly, but it's about your your contributions and um, being able to uh, to give back, whether it is about a quality contribution, a, a quantity contribution, that it all builds together um, to have a powerful benefit at the end of the day. Oh, that's absolutely absolutely right. But you know, I think we. I think sometimes we catch ourselves doubting whether or not we have a shared interest in the future of this country. You look at the nature of the sometimes rabid sound bites being thrown across Twitter or you know when you when you look at the sheer amount of uh, economic injustice in this country and you wonder whether or not we actually do want and recognize a, a shared future. But then when you turn around and you see all this amazing stuff that people do uh, when they didn't have to, then you realize how very special South Africans um, are. And, and I think we've got to catch ourselves doing good rather than only bleach at each other in a couple of characters. Mm. I'm so glad you raised that point, and I think it also echoes if we think uh, further across the the ocean um, to the recent election with Biden and that aspect of of unity, togetherness, and doing what's right. Yeah, I mean, I think there there is a massive issue in the world. The world is unkilted generally, or out of kilter, unbalanced in the sense of the the haves and the have not those Gini coefficients are real. They are hurting when the equity of life just feels so insoluble. Then it's not surprising that you get people who are marginalized saying, you're not listening to me. And if you're not going to listen to me, I'm going to make you listen to me. And the irony is that in the recent American elections, we end up with people who, relatively speaking, are haves saying, you're not listening to me. Uh, in this country, an example of this would have been, you know, when the EFF marched on the JSE when I was a CEO and 40,000 people came with Julius Malema and his leadership to say, you are not hearing us, uh, South Africa. We, we are economically marginalized and this is not equitable. And so this question of social justice, uh, we really have to tackle as a country. We really have to recognize that the benefit of doing business, of being in power, political or otherwise, is not for the person who's in power, who's running the business, who owns the business. It has to be done in an equitable manner so that everybody gets some level of um, upside uh, from that because it is not sustainable to have benefit only going in one direction. Thank you very much for all of those points. Moving towards the last part of the show, one of the questions that I ask all my guests on this program who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of work is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed to their success, whether it's hard work, uh, a particular person in your life, Please, can you share with us what you would say have been some of the key drivers to your success? Um, well, I, I was given uh, amazing examples from my parents. Um, my mother was a professional farmer. She worked incredibly hard. And one of my earliest memories is, in fact, of her being arrested 
uh, by the police because she refused to get a pass for one of the ladies working for us. And the subsequent massive political issues that came out of that. My father was a very well-known lawyer, uh, very politically conscious. Um, the discussions around our dining room table were always about uh, the responsibility of looking out for those who had less than you did. So I had a really strong foundation of sort of social justice and that this this world was bigger than about than you. My parents were uninterested about status, etc., much more about how you used what you had to make a difference for others. And that really has been a big thread in my entire life. But if you look at my career, I had moments where unusual things happened, whether that was the EFF marching and the point that that put me uh, in the discussion with the JSE board and with some of our clients about this is the moment that corporate South Africa has to take a check on how it is doing business. Or, you know, the fact that I was, uh, for instance, in, in London when the Minister of Finance was recalled by President Zuma and how that then led to multiple uh, non-deal roadshows with National Treasury as arguing the case for South Africa with international investors. Amazing, amazing things. And in all of those journeys, I've had incredible support from people. Right at the very earliest age, I've had uh, support from partners at the law firm that I was at who gave me responsibility went way beyond my age and experience. I had incredible support from the chairman that I worked with at the JSE, both male and female chairman, and how they supported me when I did great things and they supported me when we made mistakes. And those two led lessons for me. So I think overall, um, you know, when, when you put yourself in a position to be considered for responsibility, having spent the time getting properly educated, being supported by people is a really important thing. And I, I've been very lucky to, to have that support unconditionally um, and I've tried, as I've been a leader, to provide that sort of support to the people who've worked for me and to ask that my leaders, my people I work for, um, take similar care of the people that they have the privilege um, uh, of leading. But ultimately, you know, leadership is not for sissies. It's hard. It is a lot of grit. I enjoyed so much of it. I, I really enjoyed the privilege of leading uh, my teams and leading the JSC. And I would say that the things that I didn't like, I could count on, on two fingers. And those were the times that we had to uh, retrench because it is the hardest thing you would ever have to do is to, to look somebody in the eye and say, I'm sorry, but there's no future here. But overall, I think that I was lucky to be where I was, having had the education that I did, the background that I did and the support that I did. And, and I hope that I did all of that proud by the end of my career there, the JSE. The idea of mentorship is coming through very strongly, both in terms of you being mentored as well as encouraging and having other people give everyone else a, a chance or an opportunity to help lift them up. You know, it's so important. You know, we started this conversation talking about the aspirational nature of, for instance, Kamala Harris is becoming the vice president. And when you are a leader, you don't have to have the title CEO. You may be the leader of your team. You may be um, the oldest aunt in your family, the only one in your family with a degree, as an example. All of these are aspirational things for people watching you. And and so 
what you discover when you, when you climb a ladder is that you become busier and busier. There's much less you time. There's much more things you have to be doing. And you have to make time for people who need to just see that it is possible to aspire to doing the sorts of things that you do. That doesn't mean hundreds of hours. It means making time. It means sometimes, you know, going to talk to the to the girls' groups, uh, in the women's groups in your in your organization, or talking at a school or a church, or um, just actually having that quick conversation with someone who's had a hard meeting that you've witnessed or that you've heard that they've really done something amazing and you just want to say, hey, hold on, I'm catching you doing something good. Yeah. Uh, those are the sorts of things that really made a difference to me as I was climbing the ladder. And I hope, you know, when I was able to do that, made a difference to people. Thanks again. Sharing what it's like as as a hands-on point of view, as well as the recipro- reciprocity of what you learned and giving back to others. Casting your mind back, can you tell us about some of the pivotal moments growing up? Well, um, as I said to you, the one that really struck with me, this question of the personal responsibility to drive social justice was my mother being arrested. Because notwithstanding the fact that we had massive conversations at our dining room tables about social justice and equity and politics, etc., actually seeing your mother carted off in a police car is quite something. And and following through with what you're going to say, you know, that was a major, major thing. I, I had uh, a very interesting experience when I was a young lawyer. Uh, we were working on a very hard case and I was responsible for doing something and I did it wrong. And uh, that caused the entire case to collapse because it started again, thankfully. So it was quite possible for the partners at the time to say to me, there's the door, don't bother coming back. But instead, they helped me uh, clean it up. They supported me as I worked through the new uh, positioning of the case, etc. And that set a very good example for me because no career doesn't have its moments of mistakes. And, and I spent a lot of time in my career when I was the deputy CEO, the CEO, essentially supporting teams to succeed. And if they didn't succeed, taking responsibility for finding a new way forward. And, and I really learned an enormous amount in that. I wish I'd never had that lesson, but boy, did I have it. And in all its glory, had a really formidable example to follow. Um, I suppose it would be fair to say that... Um, uh, the EFF march on the JSC was really important because, you know, that was the time that the entire Santon cleared out. Uh, and there was myself and, and another colleague meeting the entire leadership of the EFF and really being able to demonstrate that we were listening, notwithstanding the fact that some of our clients were really not particularly comfortable with that at the time, was a, was a major turning point in how business engages with the political agenda, I, I think. Uh, and that, as I said, led to this involvement really when the time came in the whole question of the CEO initiative and batting for SA Inc. when the country was being threatened with ratings downgrades uh, and the like. And what you learn is that everybody wants the right thing to happen from this country. The, the example set by Minister Gordon at the time and his team were of 
hard work of authentic engagement with the internationals, of, of really formidable intellectual understanding of the national issues and their implication on the national balance sheet was tremendously inspiring. Um, and so these things all sat with me and hopefully, you know, as I led, helped me show to my team the facets about why it really mattered that the JSC did what it did well, that people could rely on it. And the importance of what we did was more complex than the actual things we actually did. Making sure we did it well every day so that people could rely on us was so important for the national sense of uh, uh, we can trust something here when all about is, is feeling a little bit scary. Um, was something that really sat with me and, and that we we spoke a lot about uh, within the JSC. It's almost as though you've been able to personify the JSC through human values of trust, of social responsibility, of social justice, and to be able, as let's say the organizing entity or the governing governing body of corporate South Africa to be able to influence change within other organizations? Well, we try to lead by example, firstly. So our example of a transformed workplace executive board really set a very formidable example for our clients to say it's actually possible to find really good women as an example and run a complicated business. So we did try and these are these agendas of change, uh, but by example, by leading by example, not just by letting people sort of hear words. And so there was nothing in our listings requirements we didn't comply with, as an example. When we talked about social justice, for instance, the paying of suppliers early, we did that right from the very beginning before we raised it. Those sorts of issues, you've got to lead by example for people to actually take you seriously I, I I think but it's also uh, my natural inclination to be more carrot than stick so that to celebrate rather than to beat up because it's tough surviving in an economy that is under pressure as it has been in the last 10 years not just the last two years and so when you're asking corporates to not only survive but to survive by doing things in a particular way you've really got to persuade them on that. You've really got to, uh, I'd say, use more carrots. I think we could use more carrots in in everything in life. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) And lastly, as we close out today's conversation, please, can you share a few words of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to impart to younger women on the continent who are listening to us? I would say that although things are are tough out there at the moment, the world in which we are working is significantly more gender-friendly than it was in our parents' and grandparents' ages. And I think it would be really a wonderful thing for us to be able to celebrate some of the new young women busy breaking uh, ground and we will then see how uh, how far we actually uh, have come. But take heart. Times have changed. They will continue to change. And the more we push, the more they will change. Thank you so much. I think that is such a great message of advice, very motivating and inspirational. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today. 
thank you very much. I've really enjoyed the conversation and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to join you. And we wish you all the very, very best in whichever route that you take on your next leg of journey of life. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Nikki Newton-King, the former CEO of the JSE.